welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was Weren't Born a Man from Diana Gillespie's Weren't Born a Man album from 1973. Weren't Born a Man is also the title of Diana's fabulous autobiography that is now available in hardback form and available to uh, be autographed by Diana. Diana, uh, welcome to the show, first of all. Well, hello, Jason. I'm happy to know about Strange Brew. It's a a new thing to me, so I'm being educated. Thank you. Now, uh, reading your autobiography is is an education to me because not only is it an insight into your life, there are so many musicians and people from the last 50 years who you've worked with and have been friends and uh, collaborated with. It is quite an incredible story. When did you get the idea to uh, capture this all in a, an autobiography? Well, I've always been a bit of a what you, a raconteur, a, a storyteller. I, I actually inherited that from my father. And if you sit me down at a dining table, I probably would take over because I've got so many stories. And everyone kept saying to me, you know, have you written a book yet? But continuously. So about eight years ago, I thought, well, I should do that, especially when I'd be sitting in going to gigs with the band, the London Blues Band, and I'd be telling some of the juiciest stories and they'd all go, oh, my God, you've got to write this down. So I did actually sit down and do it. And I, it, I originally was going to call the book I Rest My Case because I just released then an album called I Rest My Case and a blues album. But then everyone kept saying they think Weren't Born a Man was more commercial. And I suppose it is, but it makes more sense if people know about the LP that I, LP <laughs> album <laughs> that I did in 1973, which has the Andy Warhol track on it that Bowie wrote for me. You know, I finally sat down and after a few attempts, finally got it together, which is good. Mm. It really does take us uh, from your early years in the countryside, in essence, uh, to South Kensington in in the late 50s. And your background, you seem to come from um, a background that uh, has uh, a parent that were quite open to you um, exploring, developing as, as you grew up. I had was very lucky to have very intelligent and liberal and generous-hearted parents, and I think they probably realised from an early age with me that if they said no to me over something, I'd have done it anyway. So far better to just be open and honest. But the thing is, they were bright, they were intelligent. I always have said that at my parents' house, you know, there'd be dinner parties and social intercourse would take place. You know, we'd talk. I was used to um, being in an adult's world quite early. And my father always read, I mean, he had a huge library of books. And I was lucky that he gave me some really great books from an early age. And I mean, most people, you know, it was a slightly privileged upbringing. But the fact I was very independent, too, because I... You know, I wanted to be independent financially, which is why I became a paper boy, a paper girl delivery person mm. from the age of 11 to 15, dodging the flashers who'd stand on the doorstep. And, and they never minded that I started going to the Marquee Club and all these mm. places. I don't think they realized what the clubs were because they came from a kind of world where you can't explain what it's like to go into a blues club where it, everything's dripping with sweat, the walls especially plus the musicians, but uh, because I always had an honest relationship with them, I could talk to them about anything. 
So uh, there was never any reason to rebel or lie. And my sense of rebellion was so small, I didn't actually leave home till I was 30. Because why should I? I had my own mm. apartment in a huge house and had a great life. What a time to be a teenager and living in, in central London. And, and you mentioned going to the marquee and you've mentioned what you saw bands like the Who and the Yardbirds as well as uh, David Bowie in his kind of early guise. Well, of course, in those days, he wasn't Bowie, he was Jones. But, yeah, I was a massive Yardbirds fan in the early 60s. So I would go down to, to the marquee whenever I could or if they were playing at the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond or in Croydon, I would be there. It wasn't just the Yardbirds. You had, obviously, the Who. In fact, at the beginning, I think they were even called the High Numbers. Mm. And then there was uh, another favorite of mine was a group called Gary Farr and the T-Bones. And then because I've always lived in South Kensington, that meant that the one club around the corner from me, the Cromwellian, had bands like the Artwoods, that's Ronnie Wood's wow. brother Art. And then you had, eventually, Steam Packet, which was... Long John Baldry, known affectionately as Ada Baldry, <laughs> and um, with Rod Stewart and Julie Driscoll and young, well, he was still Reg Dwight then, Elton, sometimes on keyboard. So, and this was, I would be, I, I never missed days at school, although I, because I was always kind of rather good and I mean, I wasn't a rebel in one sense, but I was in that my life was leading me to music that was the thing i adored more than anything else and i if you have a passion you can't squash it down it if you put like a lid on it like a saucepan you know if you squash it down and it's boiling it's going to explode so i just was able to go to all these great places and a lot of people always seem to want to know how did i first meet bowie well of course he i think he was actually supporting gary fire and the t-bones that night and you know he came up to where at the end of the show and I was brushing my waist length slightly a few peroxide blonde streaks in it hair and he took the brush out of my hand and carried on brushing and said can I come home with you tonight I think I was 14 and I said yes <laughs> as one does <laughs> and I introduced him to my parents the next day and they didn't freak out they were astounded to see somebody with such long yellow le lemon yellow hair because the uh, people didn't have hair that length in those days even the beatles who were making headline news for their long hair it hardly touched their collar <laughs> that was just how the times were so how did you get your first recording contracts because you, you released a uh, donna donna the, the folk track all the way back in 1965 yeah that i think it was on pie records well because I was always hanging out with David, well, I'll call him Bowie, but of course, he's, as I said, he wasn't Bowie then, but I know so many Davids, I can't call anyone David. I always call them by their surnames. So I, we used to go up to the Tin Pan Alley, Denmark Street, which is, you know, where all in those days all the music publishers were. And we'd sit in there in the Giaconda Cafe waiting for somebody to come and shout for a backing singer or a bass player or whatever, and then you'd be used. And so I I knew that there was a company down there that they'd sort of seen me, uh, Southern Music, actually, it was. And, and then I, I met, you know, and the, there was a television program then called Ready, Steady, Go. So if you went down to that place, which I used to go to with Bowie, where you networked, although he was always far better at networking than me. I was just happy to be dancing on the TV studio floor 
watching Jerry Lee Lewis. I remember being astounded by his kind of wacky playing. But, you know, I just kind of met the managers of Donovan and he just had a hit because he'd just been on Ready, Said He Go. They offered me, well, they got me a recording contract for singles, but I, my dream was to get onto albums. But then I was signed to something called Southern Music. I, I, in fact, records was not really on mine or Bowie's agenda. We were singers in order to pitch our songs being songwriters and that was my thing was to be a songwriter so I got a songwriting publisher shing deal almost immediately and then had to sing it in order to get the songs across and then you know I really dreamt of you know, my dream was always to go on to an L in LPs because in those days girl singers never were singer songwriters they usually had to wear nice little dresses and look all kind of neat and sort of ironed and goody. Mm. And uh, they didn't do anything rebellious. So I was on Ready, Said, You Go in a pair of jeans, which was unheard of then. Nobody did that. It were men did. Well, Donovan did, but he had a hat on his head. I didn't wear that. But I just somehow bounced from one lot of management company to another and somehow kept going slowly and surely upwards to in order to achieve my dream. track I'd like to play is a song of yours Blue Temptation which uh, I think was from your <laughs> Blue One album from uh, 1994 but um, I've chosen that because I think in your autobiography you, you described how um, that was uh, one of Bob Dylan's favourite 
but your connection with Bob goes back. Yeah, that's right. I first met Dylan, oh, that must have been 1965 when he came over because he was doing the Albert Hall um, when he was still a, a solo man. Then he came back the following year with the band and you had all these twits shouting blasphemy and, you know, <laughs> Judas and get off because they didn't like it that he was with the band. And then years later, but well, I don't know if you wanted to know, know about this yeah, then, but yeah. he asked me to be the opening act for his, I think it was 97, wow. for his British tour. We finished up at Wembley Arena, but he did say to me, you know, he loved this song. He actually said he really liked my songwriting, which is yeah. great praise when you consider, in my view, that uh, Dylan is probably the greatest 21st century poet, writer, you know, I can't say singer because some people might say they don't really kind of get his voice, but it. But as a songwriter, he was he was extraordinary. So yeah, Blue Temptation. That was part of a, a trilogy of albums. I did three albums where every single song title had the word blue in it. Yeah. Things like Who Blew Who and uh, Have I Got Blues for You, things like that. So yeah, I, uh, Blue Temptation. Oh, so you're going to play it? Good for you. <laughs>
we talked about uh, your connection with Bob Dylan, but um, I've known Jimmy Page for, and have remained fr- friends with Jimmy Page uh, from the mid '60s to the present. You worked with him for your. You've you just, just got, got to know my mind. It was actually a sort of rather. It, it was always jokingly called a sort of surfing song written by Donovan, and it was chosen to be on my first LP, which was on Decca. And in those days, Jimmy Page plus John Paul Jones on bass were the top session guys. Um, you know, you had a, in those days, you had musicians who were the very straight normal musicians unions who would charge double if you went one minute past the union timings, which I don't think that kind of nonsense goes on any longer. But and it's also because there were a lot of orchestras with violin players and things. So, But if you wanted mm. something cooler and hipper, if you were a producer and choosing musicians, you you would go for Jimmy. And he was on nearly every every pop hit you can imagine. He played with on everybody I mean unknown of course because he didn't get credits in fact when my album with this track on it you just got to know my mind when it came out it was called Foolish Seasons not one musician got a credit later they bought it out in a CD form but so you can see the album but you wouldn't know it's Jimmy Page on guitar and he actually produced this one track of You Just Got to Know My Mind and it's of course it's him on guitar and John Paul Jones on bass but I have remained friends with them through him through the years title track of Foolish Seasons is uh, one of my favourite tracks uh, from that album and, and that being one of the tracks that you uh, 
you wrote yourself and you worked with some, uh, you know, Mike Vickers on arranging that and and Wayne Bickerton as producer. What was the uh, recording like? Well, it was in the huge studios up in Decker. I used to go up there with my dog, my Norwich Terrier called Sneezy, who would sit at my feet while I sang. But it's quite intimidating because I had no nobody to kind of show me the way. What was I, 16 then? I know 16-year-olds are far more grown up than in those days, but I was still in a way a bit ahead of my time. And Wayne Bickerton was the producer. He was a kind of in-house producer for Decca. And I think they wanted to give him something to do. You know, I think Dick Rowe, the head of Decca, Dick, who was always famous for having turned down the Beatles, yes. he said, you know, that Wayne, you know, do something with this girl, Dana. And I always, I did do some of Wayne's songs, but I've always actually preferred my choice of songs or the ones I've written myself. On that album, yes. Foolish Seasons, and it, I'm sort of standing on the front with a Palomino horse in a caftan. It's the 60s, of course. Yeah. Um, I think I might have even had a headband on with my long hair. I vaguely remember I did another version of it on the Box of Surprises album. And again, Box of Surprises fetches quite a lot of money apparently on eBay and it's with a band that got no credit at all on the LP which was a a great blues band called Savoy Brown and when I hear it back my voice sounds almost not quite fitting enough with their blues things because although I sang in tune I hadn't really matured enough vocally I don't think to be full-on blues in those days and there weren't any girl blues singers. Mm. Um, they, they just didn't exist. Well, they did if you were big and black and probably dead, you know, like Bessie Smith or something. But there weren't any, there certainly weren't any floating around in England. There was a woman called Ottilie Patterson who was married to Chris Barber in the old days. She sang nice blues, but there were very, very few. So I just kind of, again, had to uh, kind of stumble along in my own way, hoping that people would like what I was doing. The snow will freeze my heartaches Foolish spring To think that your blossom can cheer my soul Foolish summer To think that the sun will dry my tears And foolish autumn To think that I won't love you Foolish summer To think that 
your blue skies matter at all And foolish autumn to think that all will be well Foolish Seasons is a track I always liked, but there was another one that I wished I'd written, but I didn't. It's called Dead. Yeah. It's all about taking, slashing your wrists. I mean, that's pretty far out for somebody who's only 16, but it had a slightly kind of uh, bluesy, jazzy feel, which was also not really chart material, sadly. I was always a bit kind of left field. I was not doing, I suppose, the Sandy Shaw and, and Lulu type of music. That wasn't my my way. So I was very lucky, though, because at the end of it, Dick wrote Decca, when, I, when the Foolish Seasons finally came out, it, it only was released in America for some mm. bizarre reason on, on something called London Label. It apparently fetches quite a bit if you... Um, find it on, what do you call that, eBay or something. Leave me alone. I don't care no more I ain't got nothing to live for Not since he's been gone I just want to be dead
Dick Rowe was really nice and knew that I wanted to really sing my own song. So he let me do one more LP, which was called Box of Surprises, and they were all my own compositions. I was desperate to be known as a singer-songwriter, and that was my thing, really. Yeah, and on Box of Surprises, um, and there's a, a song there, uh, for David the next day. And it, it seems incredible that David Bowie recorded an album called The Next Day. Well, yeah, because, of course, I was a mere 14 when I met him. So one always, I mean, they were it's hardly really romantic. I can hardly remember the lyrics now. But, yeah, I mean, I was, we were involved, but I never wanted to be Mrs. Jones. That was never my intention our relationship was always okay there was a bit of sex thrown in there well quite a bit actually because we were young but you know it was more of a musician's friendship and um that's why we remained friends right up until when he made the big final move to america in 75 yeah a lot of people want to know about for david the next day it you know i was young and that's when you wrote kind of love songs and uh that's I used to write like that, and I've always been a very much a songwriter that's completely different from from Bowie because he is very good at writing abstractly, and I tend to write about emotions as I'm plowing through them. In the cold night, I wonder why you. For your silence fills the air just like a scream And I lie here whispering to a shadow Who's as empty and as distant as a dream Footsteps echo in the night and my pulse quickens for I think that maybe now you will be kind But the footsteps fade away just as my hopes do As I know that I'm not even on your mind You know it's not
David wrote Andy Warhol for you. Is that is that right? Yes, it, he announced it on the John Peel show that he'd written this song for me. So he must have. Re- I can't remember exactly when he was. Well, maybe about 1970. By this time, well, of course, we had rather parallel careers uh, at that time. You know, I was on Decca, but he was on a subsidiary label of theirs called DRAM. So we were both. We both did our album. I mean, he had a minor hit with the laughing gnome whereas my attempts at folky pop didn't really didn't go as high as the laughing gnome but he didn't want to be known as the laughing gnome anyway and um he'd always said to me we really need an, a, a good manager and both of us had been through about 10 managers each looking for somebody that would take us to the higher plane and of course then he met Tony DeFries who mm. really came along and saved his and mine but especially his bacon and lifted him to a far higher level through through quite a few years of incredible hard work and financial um sponsoring I'm mean, kind of doing everything for David but anyway, we did the John Peel show, and he he announces on the John Peel show that he's written it for me. But he also announces that I'm a really good singer, but a, a really good songwriter, and that I haven't made any albums. He'd forgotten that I had made two LPs for Decca. I mean, Bowie fans will know about this because I mean we all make mistakes, and I guess he was he was there was a load of us in the studio. So uh, why he wrote Andy Warhol, I will never know. I've never been that particularly moved by Andy Warhol art. I've always said I wouldn't would never want to live with a picture of Campbell's soup can on my wall, but um each to their own and I suppose if it's worth millions one might learn to live with it. But you know, Bowie was much more taken with the American world than me, especially the kind of slightly avant garde and it must be said rather gay world. So or controversial type of world. So I I have a feeling that he wrote this song for me. Then I recorded it just, I think, just before I started doing Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was originally meant to be that he would produce my album for Main Man. But suddenly he was going off to America. DeFries was sending him off to America and doing major promo, and things were starting to happen. So his wonderful guitarist, Mick Ronson, in the end produced the album but on my version of Andy Warhol you can hear David's voice being my backing singer and playing 
the 12-string guitar, because we both played 12-string guitar, because when you're not that a brilliant guitarist, if you've got 12 strings instead of six, it makes a much fatter sound. You can get away with a whole lot more. And then he liked this version so much that he recorded it himself for the Hunky Dory album. But his album came out before mine because I was still stuck in Jesus Christ Superstar. So it wasn't always very easy to finish the album in time. And by the time I'd finished Jesus Christ Superstar, Main Man and Bowie and his then wife Angie were kind of much more based in America. And then I went and joined them over there. That's very nice indeed, I thought. Written by David, anyway. And um, this next one is a... Do you want to talk about this, David? <laughs> you talk about it. This is another friend of David's, anyway. Yeah, this is another friend of mine uh, who, who lives uh, in London this time. And uh, she's a very, 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 very excellent songwriter. And she hasn't been recorded as yet with her own compositions. And needless to say, tonight is no exception. <laughs> She's doing one of uh, my things that uh, I wrote for her. And it's called Andy Warhol. And uh, this is Miss Dana Gillespie. <laughs>
just as a, a quick interlude, I, I do recommend all the listeners um, subscribing to the Main Man uh, podcast, which is excellent and also features yourself as well as um, many of the, the people associated with Main Man. I'm so pleased you listened to that, Jason, because mm. I think it's excellently done, but particularly... I find it interesting because it's got Tony DeFries talking. And, mm. of course, I mean, DeFries disappeared off the face of the earth as far as anyone over here was concerned for 30 years. Um, Bowie was, I mean, their, their their breakup was a bit acrimonious. I didn't have those kind of problems, but David did. So he never would talk about DeFries. And it's almost as if he wrote him out of his past and... Also, the same goes for that last BBC documentary directed by Francis Watley, which is called Finding Fame, The Early Five Years of Bowie. It's made without any mention of De Vries, which is like trying to talk about Elvis without mentioning Colonel Tom Parker. And, yeah. and he couldn't mention it because apparently Bowie's estate didn't want De Vries mentioned. So Bowie obviously had a a problem in that area whereas I've often thought it's a shame he wasn't more generous of spirit to acknowledge how much De Vries actually did I mean without without Main Man and with the sound of Mick Ronson but especially with Main Man De Vries managed everything financially you know did everything for 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 David and without that he wouldn't have, he was a folky singer at the beginning and then he was completely transformed by being shipped off to America I mean he hadn't experienced America before and this very much kind of hit him I think he was made for America whereas I always felt like a bit of an alien there um, but it was it was actually it really was thanks to De Vries that he got the chance to have any musicians he want, any recording studios he want. He did three albums in one year. I mean, he he, he worked really, he was doing it. And then somebody has to pay for all of this. So all organized by DeFree. So I agree the podcasts are really good. But if anyone is actually interested in the true Bowie story, they should listen to it and actually listen to what went on behind the scenes because DeFree has never talked about it before. Yeah, I do heartily recommend it. It's one of the best uh, podcasts I've listened to in, in many a time. And to get that directly from Tony and uh, yourself and, and many of the people around there has, has been uh, brilliant to, to hear. I want to talk about um, a song of yours from uh, Weren't Born a Man called Mother Don't Be Frightened. A wonderful, wonderful track. Uh, <laughs> am I right that it, it was written after you'd had a, a dose of LSD? And... Oh, yeah. Well, don't forget it was the 60s. Of course, I had to try yeah. some acid. And, of course, yeah. I'd taken it. I think I'd crawled in at 7 in the morning and bumped into my mother and thought, oh, God. Yeah. Um, but I really want, I wrote it because I wanted her to not be frightened. You know, when you're growing up, you've got to be experimental. I, I think, well, I had to be because I was going headfirst into the 60s and, you know, the music, music, mad music world. But in those days, you know, drugs were never written about. You didn't see it in a headline news. Nobody knew what anything was. And it was very, very new. I thought it was extraordinary. It was I find it found it an extremely interesting experience and can't say anything bad about it, but I didn't want my mother to feel a bit freaked out by it. So yes, that's why I wrote it. But on the actual track, you've got a you've got a marvelous piano thing, lots of yes. twiddly notes from Rick Wakeman. 
Wow. As well as, and I can't remember, I think it's the rest of the spiders of Mars from Mars are on it, as well, of course, as Mick Ronson on, on guitar, because he, in the end, landed up producing the whole album. I was going to ask you if it was Rick, because it does sound similar in style to, to Rick uh, playing on Morning Is Broken by Cat Stevens, for example. And uh, It's, it's the same. And... Yeah, you're right. Loads of twiddly notes. He was famous for okay. twiddly notes. And in fact, he's written a very nice quote that's coming that is on the I think yeah. somewhere on the cover of my my memoirs and I hadn't spoken to him for ages actually or communicated with him sent him an email and he instantly gave me a quote to put on and I thanked him for doing his twiddly bits on mother don't be frightened but that's what he was known for and I I always loved what he did with the, all the Bowie recordings
the arrangements on uh, Weren't Born a Man are so lush and it's so beautifully recorded. Tracks like What Memories We Make. <laughs> it's almost like it's almost painting a, a picture in my mind of a film or a desert or something. It's it's well, really evocative. Funny that you should say about the desert. Actually I wrote it when I was I went in this was in nineteen sixty seven. This was shortly after the Six Day War. And I met a guy by the by the on the beach ah. in a place called Elat, which was Israel. But it was deserted then. There was no sort. Now it's a kind of big tourist place. But you couldn't even get there without a military escort. And seeing this great-looking guy, I think he had been a Vietnam vet or something. He, uh, he I just suddenly was inspired to write the song. Wow. Uh, but I must say, the arrangements were done by a fabulous guy called Del Newman. At the time, the in guy was a guy called Paul Buckmaster, but he was getting a lot of fame doing the early Elton album. Um, I think the Your Song LP was done by Paul Buckmaster. And I'd said I wanted Paul Buckmaster, and he was far too busy. And then I'd heard somewhere on the grapevine that this guy, Del Newman, did good version is a great arranger and i must say i think he did a fabulous job and just the the joy is to have a let's say a big orchestra and we were all we were all in trident studios i mean bowie and i everyone and ronson we were all in there for seemed like weeks and weeks and weeks almost lived in there because those were the days when a de Vries was paying for everything which is via the record company money and um you could one could afford big orchestras. I mean, nobody's going to pay for an orchestra now. And anyway, it's all on keyboards and it's all it's all it's all false. But in those days, you could have the real thing.
Noticeable. There's one track which sadly I didn't write called Stardom Road. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it is good. And I mean, I actually thought I was being quite bold by mentioning he's got sweet puffy eyes. And I can't remember. Nobody sang about puffs in those days. But I got away with it because on that album cover, I'm for a start, I'm wearing black corset and stockings and things. Very tame by today's standards, but no singer had been on the front of their album in their underwear. And it was exactly when Bowie came out on his album wearing a dress. No man had done that either. So Main Man had quite a kind of an image, which was a little bit outrageous. And we we lived pretty outrageously. It was fun. I was having such, such fun. I could never complain about those years because it was just a joy to have been around at that time. 
and our bills were being paid. We could be for ages in the studios. We could experiment. I mean, we knew what we were doing. You know, you didn't go in there and piss about and waste time in a studios, but you could actually aim for things that, that you couldn't normally do, not nowadays in big studios, because it would cost the earth.
the uh, previous uh, podcast guests that, that I've had on the show has been Phil Brown, a sort of wonderful studio <laughs> engineer, and uh, he's got that uh, brilliant book, uh, Are We Still Rolling?, and he describes the um, recording of your, uh, your your next album, Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle, as um, <laughs> creative, although... <laughs> There's quite a few uh, drugs and uh, other things going on in the studio as well. Said, yeah, he said it. I can't quite quote it, but something like it was the I was the epitome, or these sessions were the epitome of sex and drugs and rock and roll, which is coming from him. That was when he was also, you know, working yeah. with Bob Marley, Sly and the Family Stone, yeah. Little Feet, Robert Palmer, all these guys. But we, it was just, I think I, it was a bit of a backlash for me. You know, Bo was by this time in America, and I knew I didn't really, it wasn't ready to go to America yet. And this was, must have been 1974. So it was still an album that was done for Main Man. Again, all the bills being pay, paid for by Main Man. Joy, oh joy. And, and Island Studios was off the Portobello Road, so it was right in the kind of the West Indian area. So the the whole place would smell of grass. I mean, not the studios, but to the whole area of London, because there was the West Indian area then. And I had great musicians, and I was probably very – I was the luckiest person in the world because I had um, – Simon Phillips, who's considered one of the top drummers in the world, on drums because he was only 16 then. Um, anyway, Phil Brown's book, Are We Still Rolling, is an absolute must for anyone who has any interest mm. in what went on in studios in those days. He was the resident guy for Island Studios. But I think my chapter in that book is actually the most amusing from all of them because some of the other chapters, let's he talks about where he places the microphone to get a certain sound or anything. But I was so busy having parties or the control room. I mean, it would be awash with people. Um, it didn't stop us being creative, but it did go a little bit bonkers at the t- at the time. But then so was Bowie. But he, by this time, he was doing it much more in America. And we had... You know, all these famous bands like your Bob Marley's, etc. were upstairs in the big studio. We didn't even need the big studio. We were in the small one. And they all kept coming downstairs because, A, it was party time. And, B, they came to listen into Simon Phillips on drums, yeah. which I don't blame them. So it was uh, Main Man's um, 
financial implosion that basically prevented you from recording for the rest of the 70s? Well, Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle, is it? Oh, by the way, let me say it was mm. an old Bessie Smith song, an old song from the 30s. And I was by this time already feeling the, the pull of the blues. Mm. Some people might have thought I was singing that because I was feeling like I was in second best position in, in the main man's stable. It, that sort, thought never occurred to me because... You know, Bowie and I, and in those days, Angie and DeFries, we were like a family. I never felt in second best position at all. Mm. But when the kind of breakup occurred, which was between DeFries and Bowie, not me, I was easygoing and probably not so much of a handful. When DeFries couldn't actually take Bowie's lifestyle anymore, which, which occurred really at the end of the Diamond Dogs tour, they went into litigation and because Bowie and I had both signed the same contract, which was 50% goes to the artist and 50 to the management, which that's just how the contract was. I never complained about it because if you do something, you've got to live with your actions. But quite a few years later, Bowie was complaining about it, which I think is pointless if you've done something just go okay well maybe i did maybe i goofed up there but he didn't goof up he had the the best management company ever mm. looking after him but because this litigation went on i couldn't actually record for anyone until it was sorted out i wasn't free i could do stage stuff i could do films but i couldn't really do in a thing that I was used to doing, which was, you know, I've, you know, being in studios. So this was quite a difficult time for me, actually. And if ever I've learned to sing the blues properly, it's from the dark days that I had to deal with, not just being stuck in a litigation, which meant going to see lawyers, me who'd never even had a parking ticket. I mean, I had to kind of learn that language legalese, which I still don't speak, and having to deal with all this crap. And, but I also being, my hands were tied because until Bowie and DeFree sorted out their stuff, I, I couldn't sort out my stuff because everything was under the main man umbrella. And I don't, I don't blame DeFries for anything. He, Bowie wanted his freedom from this contract. So obviously litigation goes on and it's nothing new in the music business, but it sort of got in the way of me being able to do what I actually wanted to do, which was, you know, to, to carry on recording. So I had to rethink or, well, I had to sort of pick myself up and start all over again.
like to play next a uh, big 10 inch record from your excellent blue job <laughs> album which uh you know you mentioned about uh, your, your love of the blues and i guess that that album started you on on your journey into the blues well you know i'd always loved the blues but my voice my chops hadn't been strong enough to sing the blues you i always say you have to have really lived and of course after the collapse of main man that's when i had a different type of living because suddenly i didn't have an assistant and 24 7 limos and first class tickets all over the world and five-star hotels and everything paid for which we all of us at main man did i mean it was it was a completely bonkers time of our lives but mm. one that i will never ever regret so i I had to go and do something that didn't involve recording. 
And I went off in 1980 to Vienna to do a stage show for a woman called My Zetterling. And while I was there, I teamed up with a local blues band called the Mojo Blues Band, who are very, very well known in Europe. And I became their lead singer for a couple of albums. And it was in that same year, 1980, that I, I thought, right, well, I have to do something. By this time, I'd got my freedom to record. So I go and see the boss of Ace Records, a, a wonderful guy called Ted Carroll. And he started out the business having just a little stall in Camden Town. And then he had a shop called Rock On. And then it's grown into, he was wise enough to go and buy all this uh, old catalog stuff like Stack Rec, Stax Records and all. I mean, Ace is a wonderful label. And I went to see him and I said, listen, I... I I've got. I, I knew I had to break free of the kind of glam stockings and high yeah. heels look. So the only way to do it, as I knew, also pop singers have a sell-by date, whereas blues singers can go till they drop. So I went to see Ted Carroll and I said, I've got an idea. I'd like to do an album with all the rudest blues songs ever, you know, from the 20s, 30s and 40s. And I'd like to call the album Blue Job. And he so fell about laughing. He said, sign here. And I did. So Big Ten Inch was originally done by a guy called Bull Moose Jackson. But I love the old blues because they've got a sense of humor and um, you can get up and swing about and dance. If you listen to music like Big Ten Inch, you can't sit still. It has to put a smile on your face because that's how it is. He's got to be the strangest man. Record of the band that plays the blues. Yes, the band that plays the blues. I just love this big ten inch. A record of my favorite blues. of the band
later you actually had a, a, a quite a, a big hit in in europe with uh, a, another change of sound for you uh, move your body close to me and, and well move your body close to me was while i was singing with the mojo blues band but i'd also got an early version of the london blues band which is the band i still have now obviously some of the musicians have either changed or sometimes died I suddenly, I was getting very drawn to Indian music and Oriental music. Not really new for me because in the 60s, I do remember going with Jimmy Page to listen to Ustad Vilyat Khan, who was the kind of competitor of Ravi Shankar at the Albert Hall and listening to Ala Raka, who was the world famous tabla player. I was very drawn to this kind of music, but I, I'd heard this one song Somehow I was in Dubai singing before Dubai was even, nobody even knew where Dubai was in those days. And I heard this being played and it stuck in my mind. Well, I think it stuck in my mind. And I thought this is a, I think I can turn this into a hit song. So I got the record company, not Ace Records, actually another label, an Austrian label. And I did a recording of this and it did go to number one all across Europe, but of course not in England because Britain, because the one place that usually ignores me and has ignored me through the eons of time has mostly been Britain. I don't know why, but Move Your Body Close to Me has probably done more good for me than any other song that I've written, and I'm very fond of it now, and there's a really nice video where I get to French kiss two lion cubs. I can tell you there's nothing, not erotic, but there's nothing more lovely than having baby lion cubs curling up and sticking their tongue down your throat. <laughs> Move your body close to me Body close to me, touch heart to heart, don't ever part. Oh, give in, move your body close to me, move your body close to me, reach out to feel that it's for real. Oh, give in, move your body.
The theme in your your recording career is just the incredible people that you worked with. This was true of your Methods of Release album and tracks like Divine Romance. So many great people like Guy Pratt, Mel Collins, Tim Rennick. Well, yeah, well, Guy Pratt was the bass player of Pink Floyd. Rennick was the second guitarist of Pink Floyd, but he'd also been on quite a few albums. But everyone knew him from Sutherland Brothers and Quiver and then Mike and the Mechanics. But so he was out on tour for a couple of years with the Floyd. Then I had Mel Gaynor, the Simple Minds drummer, a guy called Bill Sharp from a group called Shack Attack on keyboards. Um, My old mate, Tim Cross, who sadly is no longer walking this planet, but I did more recordings with him than anyone else. He used to be in Mike Oldfield's, what we always jokingly call tubular balls, and Rolf Harris, who was actually great on the album. Rolf has played on quite a few of my albums, and I never liked to hear anything bad said about him, because I know what a great musician he was. I mean, I don't care about all the other stuff. I know that he was fabulous at his wobble board and his heavy breathing things and and the way that he played great squeeze box and boogie piano. I mean, the man was a, a natural talent. Anyway, so I had all these guys in the studios and it was just, it was magical. But unfortunately, just as this album came out and it was for an Austrian label, the boss of the label, it was a German label actually, Belafon, um, died. Oh. So it suddenly went into the hands of his 
a merry widow who didn't really know much about the music business. And the office is closed in Vienna, where I've been based. And um, suddenly it just got no promotion at all, almost disappeared off the face of the earth. But I've got to say that Methods of Release is it's one of my favorite albums. Mm-hmm. And on the actual track, Methods of Release, the, ti- the title track, I, I even had a guy, I can't remember his name, something 101 was his name, and he was the fastest rapper in the world. This was this was 1990. I mean, nobody knew about rap in those days. We thought we were being very cool. And, and I, you know, I, I worked with the... I didn't have Phil Brown, strangely enough, whereas Phil Brown did do the Blue Job album. Um, but I was with David Malin, who another one. All my friends are dead, actually, and there's nobody left alive. Um, and we just had a great time in the studios. Even the cover gave me troubles because I'm sitting on a painting done by this amazing painter called Jörg Huber, and I'm sitting on a tiger, and I've got eight arms, um, like, a bit like an Indian goddess. And this was printed in a paper in India, and you know all sorts of. Furore came out that they thought I was trying to pose as a goddess, and anyway, but it it never did that well because it then never got promoted because there was nobody in the offices to do it. So it another one bit the dust. Are you going to play a track from that album, Divine Romance? Oh, okay, all righty ho. <laughs> Like no other divine romance Oh, what a lover touch the heart Baby, baby, that's the best part The moment I remember yeah, Is when we danced under the to you when I would always be true I would leave you never just give me that divine romance goes on forever divine romance it's now or never when you're near oh baby baby I surrender
The next track I'd like to play, if that works with you, Diana, is The Whole Universe from your Love the Love album. Oh, how clever of you to choose that. Jason, what on earth made you choose that? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to ask, uh, you're increasingly interested in, you know, the spirituality over in India, and and you've made a a lot of albums that have got that theme and and the whole universe being certainly from that lineage and inspired. I think the lyrics are are from an Indian holy book. Is is that the case? Well, it is. It's the, the, the Upanishads is like saying the Bible in England or the Torah, if you're Jewish or or the Quran, if you're Muslim, it's, it's that equivalent. And I just thought it'd be nice to take a little chunk of it and put it to music, which I did with Tim Cross. And, it's basically the the thing is that we can walk around the world, etc. But everything that we really need is within us mm. ourselves, and it's it's as if we have the whole universe within us. I mean, it's nice to go out and see the outside universe, but if you turn inwards for your emotions and for your understanding of life, it, it, the the thing that's inside you will never let you down. So. It was the last track. Which album was it from? Can you remind me again? Love the Love. Oh, Love the Love, yeah. That was an album that actually had, that was mostly sung in English, but I did do, I think it's about nine, I've lost track, nine or ten albums in Sanskrit, which is a type of music called bhajans. And, and, And actually, I always feel with this kind of Sanskrit music, it doesn't matter if you don't understand what I'm singing about. I understand it. Um, Although Sanskrit, I always say it's not a language you order a cup of tea and it's got higher meanings. But occasionally, even on these bhajan, the Sanskrit albums, I would put maybe one English track. And I've always loved the whole universe. I mean, I know one shouldn't say that about your own music, but I think it kind of says quite a lot. So well done, Jason, for picking that one. Hats off to you. Remains the spirit forever 
can sometimes be so strange Like walking on a razor's edge It's now and forever Each moment is like eternity Much more than we can ever know Much more than the eyes can see So we play our Beguiled by visions, wandering in dreams The shifting house, the mirrors where we dwell Under your charmer palace scenes Who has not fallen tangled in your spell Beguiled by visions, wandering in dreams The shifting house, the mirrors where we dwell Under your charmer palace scenes Who has not fallen tangled Nothing like the splendor of this mighty being Until the day we die We play our part And like the whole universe He dwells within our heart Oh, we play our part And like the whole be good to close with a track from what I think is your most recent album uh, the album being Under My Bed <laughs> the song Old School listening to the lyrics of that <laughs> is that kind of a, a summary of how you are today and how, how you're feeling? Oh definitely Old School is how I am today every time I step outside my front door I'm confronted by the fact that everyone's got moved on with the modern world and I haven't mm. and I'm quite happy that I haven't. I don't want to go into a cafe where I've got to pay with contactless money. Mm. I drive a car with wind-down windows that has a cassette machine in it. Mm. I don't like modern stuff, and I, 
I'm not really, I don't want to watch teenagers t- doing TikTok dances or um, mm. I just have no interest in that. So I know that I'm now out of time to quote the Chris Farlow song. I'm out of time and probably out of step with the rest of the world. And I don't do a whole lot of social media, but I do have a Facebook page. But I'd rather get on with life. And my life never had these things. And I, I don't see, I, it has no point for me. But I'm very happy that everyone else kind of gets on with it. Mm. But uh, so I, and I've seen so much of the world. I've done far more than anybody I've ever met or has squeezed into their life. I've managed to live my life many, many times. So that's why I wrote the these words to really exemplify how I feel about life. And I am very old school, but happy about it too. <laughs> do you have plans to do any more recording? Oh, yes. Um, lockdown was, I've got to say, I wish I could say the lockdown was dreadful for me, but it wasn't because Jake Zeitz, the guitarist I, I work with, um, in, he's in the London Blues Band, he left me with about 25 tracks of him playing guitar and just chord, chord progressions and grooves and things. So I wrote all the lyrics for a new album and we've recorded it. Actually, I had a, some gigs in, in the summertime in Switzerland. So the band were flown out. And while we were there, we all got a, rec- a mobile recording studio into the house and we made a new album. It's being mixed at the moment and it's called Deep Pockets. So I never stop songwriting. That is my reason to be on this planet um, is because I love songwriting and I think in terms of songs and music all the time. I may be talking to you, but I've got usually a melody going on the back in the back of my head or I think um, it might be a mild form of Asperger's. I'm not sure. <laughs> Definitely not quite normal. And I can hear a car driving past and a car horn and it'll make a note and I'll be off with the fairy somewhere composing something in my head. So there's always loads of songs to write and when this album is out, I don't think it'll be out till about Easter. And I don't actually really like talking about things before I've done them. But mm. I was I kept busy during lockdown, also finalizing the book had to be read through and read through. And there's it's 400 pages of which there's 150 photographs. And a lot of them were Polaroids that nobody's ever seen because I took them. And DeFries had given us, had given me a Polaroid camera and said just, and Andy Warhol was out with his Polaroid camera and that was the in thing in 1972. So I got all these, these pictures. Did you get to see any of the pictures? I did, yeah. Oh, right. Well, then you know what I'm talking about. I do, yeah. So there's, yeah, there's always something else to do. I mean, I guess I'll just go till, till I can't sing anymore. But when the voice gives up, I'll just, go yeah that's it goodbye and croak it's as strong as ever though at the minute at the moment yes but i'm you know i'm missing things like the local swimming pool where i swim every morning it's still closed you know and gigs i have got a gig you know i play at a place here called the 606 club but it's all socially distanced and the front row is taken out of the place so that the singer doesn't spray corona over people you know it is very different but at least i'm busy yeah and at my age if i'm not as busy as i could have been it's not the end of the world because sometimes i quite like to just mm. go for a walk and look at the trees 
Old school. Um, old, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I think that's everything. Um, I, I just want to say everyone needs to go to hawksmoorpublishing.com for an autographed copy of your hardback edition of your fabulous book, Weren't Born a Man, as well as checking out your Facebook site, as well as your website, diana-gillespie.com. Yes, you know, it's the perfect thing for a, a yeah. Christmas present because yeah. it'll get, I have, I sat down and I signed 500 of them on these pages that have been put by, have been bound into the hardback copies. So there's 500 being sent off, for, but they make a good Christmas present for somebody's dad who might be older. I mean, a lot of people say they used to kind of swoon over me in the 60s and 70s as I was falling out of various costumes from Hammer Films, and you can see it all in the book. Brilliant, Jason. That's so so nice of you to call me and um, have me rabbit away talking a load of blurbing nonsense. Well, <laughs> it's a pleasure to, to read your fantastic autobiography and even more of a pleasure to talk to you today. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Take me there And if I had to 
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.